What's going on, my podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafael Machevsky, and I got another compilation-styled episode for you today that I'm really excited about because we're going to get into some training specifics, and I find that these episodes in particular, which cover the joint-by-joint approach, is imperative for you to know, to understand what joints are designed to do, which joints are designed to be stable, mobile, and how to create a program around that to ensure that you have more days in the gym and not have those flare-ups that happen here and there that you know take a week to two weeks to sometimes even a month off from the gym and then you can't get consistent for the rest of the year. Um, and then we get into a little bit of what intra-abdominal pressure is, core, the diaphragm, and also we kind of finish off with this whole concept of grip strength because that's something that a lot of people also tend to forget about when it comes to training. So I wanted to put all these episodes together to kind of give you a guide to some functional strength where you're not going to constantly re-injure yourself in the gym. Uh, Before we get into the episode, I also want to make an announcement that I will be uh, putting out my ebook, The Ironclad Body Training System Volume 2, on a Black Friday sale where it's going to be about 50% off. So keep an eye out and ears out for that link with the discount. And without further ado, here we go. Next three episodes all about joint by joint uh, approach to training, functional training, core, intra-abdominal pressure, your diaphragm, and grip strength. Here we go. We're going to go over basically head to toe of what the joint by joint approach is. So the joint by joint approach was kind of coined by Mike Boyle and Gray Cook. If you guys don't follow those two guys highly recommend you do. Um, Essentially what they kind of put together is that some joints are supposed to be stable, some are supposed to be mobile. And I will say there are some, you know, things that the joint can be both stable and mobile. And it's like almost up to, your kind of interpretation of it and that that's literally what all of this all training is it's like you know you can follow somebody and they create this method of training based on research but really it's their interpretation of the literature right and you know joint by joint approach is just a theory and as long as you understand the rules then that's where you can start blending and bending things and I think this will kind of demonstrate that um, really really well so um, we're gonna start maybe I should use a different color I'm gonna use a different color so I'm gonna draw a little circle so this guy the neck joint needs to be stable I'm just gonna go S so I don't have to constantly write stable So if you think of the neck joint, um, the last thing you'd want is a lot of mobility in that neck joint because then you would have higher chances of injuring it. It makes sense that your neck should be stable. Right now, a lot of times when people come into the clinic and they have pain, um, a lot of times they need a little bit more 
um, strength and stability in the neck. And a lot of times when you look at our, you know, day-to-day life, we all sit all freaking day long. We are hunched over. And funny enough, I was watching uh, an old video of me, like my wife and I use an app called uh, TimeHop that um, filters all of your photos and posts that you've done since however long ago your phone has been <laughs> with you. And a couple of years ago, my wife was filming me at my desk and I was like, holy shit, my posture is terrible. So I can only imagine like if you're watching literally like this, you know, for someone like me that's in the fitness industry that knows a lot about posture and, uh, you know, functional training, functional joints and things like that. Um, I thought I would do a little bit better. Um, so that being said, um, I can only imagine how terrible the general population would feel if they're sitting in that position, especially now during COVID where everyone's working from home, like just, just terrible things. So, um, the neck should be a stable joint. So a lot of times it's just learning how to stabilize it with another exercise. So one exercise I really, really, really like, and we can actually do this. Um, we can start listing off exercises. So something, um, we can, uh, I'm gonna go through a whole rabbit hole here. Um, we're gonna go through like progressions and regressions on how to build neck stability. So there's something called a three month prone exercise from DNS. Um, and essentially you'd be lying in a prone position and all the DNS stuff is something I really, really wanna get into, but I've read into it a lot, um, is essentially finding the ways that a baby would develop and utilizing different positions from the developmental stages to kind of reset the nervous system or strengthen certain aspects of the body where it naturally occurs in um, developmental stages as a child. So the three month prone um, press up as I call it, um, is essentially in a prone position, arms out in front, and it kind of mimics like if a baby was on their belly and as they learn to roll over and move, they're using their head to rotate left and right. And a lot of times, if you think of us sitting in a desk, we're here constantly. So being in that prone position, now we're adding extension to our thoracic spine, lumbar spine, everything. And now we're learning how to uh, protract and retract our scaps and also go into that kind of like pack neck position. Um, and I really, really, really like utilizing that exercise. Um, another thing to build stability at the neck, um, again, this is also, this is where we're gonna blur lines, but um, neck cars. So when I teach neck cars, it is a mobility exercise, but at the same time, when I really think about it, in order for you to put your head into flexion, extension, and lateral rotations, I think you almost need some sort of stability in order to do those mo motions. So it kind of blurs 
some lines there, but if I'm going from a progression um, type of aspect on this, then net cards would be kind of the next thing. And now, another thing I would throw in here is the Turkish getup. Um, if you think about that first position lying down on uh, the ground and kind of coming across the body, that rolling pattern, right, um, requires a lot of neck stability. And I really like having that position where someone's lying supine because it's also teaching how to place the head in a more neutral position. And when I coach the Turkish getup, I tell people like, as you get set and you're about to roll over, I actually want you to push into the ground to find that neutral position to create a little bit more joint centration. And again, these terminologies that I'm bringing up like joint centration, I have created, um, podcast episodes on this, so look back. Um, and other stuff that people don't think about is like, oh, I went with the wrong color. Um, like anything with a TRX when, like just TRX rows in general. So when you think about um, on the way down, in order to hold that position, on TRX row and pulling yourself up, like all this stuff in your neck has to stabilize so that you just don't pop back or anything like that. So things where you're you know, on lying down and you have to support your neck are gonna be great ways to stabilize the neck joint. Another one that people don't think about is like hip thrusts. So if you're doing a proper hip thrust, um, the motion, where say if I'm starting, I'm in that seated position and as I'm driving up and I'm here and my, I'm not resting my head on the bench or box or whatever you're using, I'm holding it for a split second and then coming back down. So there's that repetitive nature of stabilizing the neck. Um, I think I'm gonna stop it there because I could go into so many different directions on the neck and we haven't even like gone down a little further and I'm going to periodically check my phone like I did earlier and there was that awkward um, quiet space but I want to make sure that uh, my phone doesn't shut off or anything um, okay so let us go should have drew this a little bit better but we are going to circle and again hopefully you guys can see this right in the T-spine. So, I'm gonna do it like this. So, T-spine <laughs> needs to be a mobile joint. So if you think about the design, and like, if you go take an anatomy course or study the anatomy, um, and you look at the biomechanics of each single joint, um, that can also give you a clue to what you should be uh, focusing on. And if you look at the thoracic spine, um, it needs to be a mobile joint because if you look at how much rotation, especially, that a thoracic spine can utilize is about 45 degrees. And a lot of times, going back to that first example where our, everyone's sitting, especially now during COVID, this eliminates the ability to rotate left and right and working with the general population and even like people that are gym goers that are kind of 
I would call them like meatheads where, you know, it's like bench, back squat, bicep curls, chest all day, every day. And they end up getting really, really um, stiff thoracic spines. So it is imperative for the human body to have adequate thoracic um, mobility. And some of the stuff that I like to do, um, and I feel like I can also start showing exercises. So just any T-spine exercise, any T-spine that um, promotes not only rotation, but also extension and flexion. So you guys have probably seen so many things that I've posted, but things like rib rolls, open books, arm sweeps, anything that opens out um, thoracic um, section of the body. Um, I also like using foam roller extensions. That helps a lot. I also like using a bench in front and going into thoracic um, extension in that position. Stole that from the powerlifting community. I think I saw it from Eric Cressy. Um, just get that T-spine moving. T-spine cards as much as possible. Like just anything that will prov uh, promote rotation, extension, and adequate flexion. And again, I don't really train that much flexion for the T-spine because we're already here. I don't feel that we need more. I feel like we need more extension-based stuff and not through the lumbar. So as long as I can get that thoracic um, spine moving a lot better, it kind of trickles into all other things. So here's an example, and I will go back into this. So. If the thoracic spine, for some reason, um, doesn't move as well, everything else has a kind of like a magnifying effect where everything else stays tight. The moment that this section of the body starts moving a little bit better, now the neck can move a little bit more freely. Because if you think about, you know, our bodies being one unit, um, it will influence other things. So if I have a little bit more movement through here for sure if you think of like the stuff in our neck that connects down to the same area it probably has a line of tension that could get released and things will start moving better and again i'm checking to make sure yep um i don't know why i was kneeling down that so long so again we've i've covered so much t-spine stuff um, maybe I'll do a post, um, actually, I think that would be good. I'm going to create a post actually with all my thoracic extension and rotation exercises that you can start utilizing to improve T-spine motion. Um, but now we're going to move on to the shoulder joint. And honestly, the shoulder joint is one of my favorites. And this is where the shoulder itself, if you look at it as one whole unit, it needs to be both mobile and stable at the same time. So this is one of those ones that I was saying that breaks a rule. But if you look, break it down a little bit further, the glenohumeral joint where the humerus goes into the glenoid, um, that needs to be mobile in order to go into flexion and rotate. And I'm just doing a simple shoulder car. That glenohumeral joint needs to be super mobile. 
but the shoulder blade needs to be stable. If you have a super mobile shoulder blade, it's gonna kind of float all in weird stuff. And that's where you get a lot of issues going down the road. So overall, the shoulder joint needs to be both mobile and stable in my opinion. But if you start breaking it apart, then that's where you can have clear lines at glenohumeral joint, um, mobile, and scapula needs to be stable. So a couple things with this guy. If I had to start picking exercises, and let's go with, we'll, we'll probably do two categories. Um, we'll go with mobility first. Hopefully you guys can see this. Um, and if you can, you can probably just zoom in on your end. Um, I always go with the shoulder car. So when you look up a definition of like a joint or even better yet, if you have to figure out um, how to keep a joint healthy, you need to make sure that articulation moves, right? So if I, again, sit all day and don't let this shoulder move beyond me going onto my laptop, grabbing a cup out of the cupboard, certain points of that joint is not gonna be as healthy compared to, you know, me moving it constantly in all these different positions. So if you kind of think about it in the sense that the moment you add movement, like our joints are meant to move, the moment you stop movement, things go south, things start deteriorating, things start, you know, getting tight, things start hurting. And our body's really efficient at figuring out, you know, do you need this? If I don't use it, I lose it. I always use that lame joke, but it's really, really true when it comes to working with any kind of joint. So the shoulder car is one of those things that's a global effect, not only for the joint, but other things. So if you think about what allows the shoulder to move, not only like the rotator cuff and everything else, um, it has a global effect on other parts of the body. So we go back to the T-spine. So T-spine starts moving better, neck starts moving better, shoulder starts feeling better. And now you can kind of see how things kind of spill out because again, we're not, you know, singular um, beings of, you know, my hip does this, so I just have to do hip exercises. It's, I do a hip exercise, but I'm also influencing other things. So with the um, T-spine, a lot of times it's gonna influence other things and I'll show you this more as we go through this joint by joint approach. Um, so for mobility, the shoulder car is kind of the king exercise that I always like to use, but a lot of times people do it incorrectly. So a lot of times it's just repetition, like just get that shoulder moving. Um, for stability, this is where kettlebells come into play. Any like, if you've seen any of my posts, you'll notice that I always use kettlebells. So the biggest thing that I like to use uh, kettlebells for is shoulder health. So if you think about it, if I went to go grab 
you know, um, heavy dumbbell. Automatically in your head, you're like, oh shit, this is heavy. I don't want to injure myself. So I'm going to grip it as tight as possible. And the moment you grip something super, super tight, that shoulder likes to centrate and get into um, a better position. And when I think about, you know, joint centration, I think about safety. So anytime I'm doing a stability exercise, I'm thinking about um, safety. Um, so the grip is kind of one of those triggers to tell the rest of your body to be in a centrated position. And I really, really um, like using kettlebells because most of the time, if you use a heavy enough kettlebell to do say a farmer carry, the handle's a lot thicker than your typical dumbbell. So now I gotta work a little bit harder and that just bulletproofs my whole theory and idea behind that joint centration. Um, and then I also, for um, grip stuff, is any kind of bottoms up kettlebell stuff, it kind of almost tricks the body to stabilize a little bit more, thinking that it's a lot heavier and it needs more stability. So a lot of times when I work with patients, I end up using only like an eight or 10 kilo kettlebell in a bottoms up position. And that just like, people feel it right away. And they're like, oh shit, like this is really, really helping my shoulder. Um, the other thing that uh, I wanna bring up here is a lot of times when I do my carries, I'm not super close because I want most bang for my buck, bunk, bang for my buck um, exercise. So when I think about the shoulder, I'm thinking about what he can do. So that's why when I do a farm carry, not only am I squeezing tight to get that joint centration, but I'm also um, abducting. So I'm taking my arm that's holding the kettlebell out to the side to about 20 degrees and then externally rotating it about 45 degrees to also get every single rotator cuff muscle um, activated during that time. So if you look at what the rotator cuff muscles are, what they do, now you can start influencing certain exercises with those same um, actions that those muscles are responsible for. And in my head, I'm like, that's what functional training is. If you can understand the anatomy, if you can understand the motions and actions a muscle can do and you start influencing your training with that, then you're like a lot further ahead than most people because most people just do what the person beside them is doing or they stick to what they know. It's like, I'm gonna sit on this machine and just do whatever thing it tells me to. And sometimes that's not the best concept. So shoulder cars, kettlebells for, um, building up the shoulder both for mobility and stability. So the next thing I wanna get into is lumbar spine. So we're going to, we're gonna hit the big players first. So let's go like this. So the lumbar spine, it needs to be a stable joint. Why? If you look at, again, the biomechanics of what a lumbar spine can do, when it comes to rotation, like we did with um, the thoracic spine, it has about 13 to 15 degrees of rotation. So if you think about any rotational sport, 
or just in life in general that requires you to rotate. If you don't have enough thoracic mobility, where is your body gonna most likely get it from? Lumbar spine. A lot of times, and again, this I'm gonna bring up the lumbar spine again, how it gets influenced by other regions of the body. When the lumbar spine has to make up for it, that's not designed to do a lot of mobility, you get low back pain, right? And if you look at the statistics right now, it's really staggering how many people have experienced low back pain. And a lot of times you check thoracic mobility and the person doesn't have it, they end up having low back pain or host of other stuff going on. And kind of going back to this whole like global effect, how other things influence, going back to the shoulder actually, when the shoulder starts moving better, the neck also can take a little break. So because the lumbar spine is stable and the neck is also stable, in order for them to stay doing their jobs, other parts of the body need to be uh, mobile. So if the T-spine and shoulder can do their job by staying mobile, the neck doesn't have to stay tight and it can do its job to be stable. So again, joints influence so many different things. Um, so for the lumbar spine, when it comes to creating stability based on exercises, um, things like, let's make a list. Let's do it this way. Just, just core. I'm just gonna, just gonna do this. Core. And when I say core, you want to think of what our spines are designed to do. They are designed to fight flexion, extension, anti-rotation, and anti-lateral flexion. Again, going back to like, if I know my anatomy and I know what the parts of the meat wagon that's here are designed to do, then my training can get influenced by it. So when it comes to the core with what I just said, if I know that I can influence the lumbar spine by being stable, by going by that logic, things like an anti-rotation press and all their variations, chops and lifts, single arm farmer carries, side planks, front planks, anything that fights off those motions of rotation, um, anti-lateral flexion, um, flexion and extension, I'm in the right realm of keeping my lumbar um, spine stable. Crunches do not fall into this, right? You're just going into repetitive flexion. That's not fighting flexion, if that makes sense. So if I created an exercise where I had to fight flexion, then 100% that would help. But if I'm just going into repetitive flexion, then I'm not doing myself any favors. And if you even look at like EMG studies of uh, muscle activation for core exercises, like crunches is a pretty low end exercise when it comes to activation. And a lot of people who do crunches in their head, they're like, oh, if I do crunches, my abs are gonna pop out. But you're choosing an exercise that's 
actually not the greatest when it comes to muscle activation. So why are you wasting your time? So if you follow proper core training, and I can probably do another video in here once. And again, I apologize for the mess because like we just moved in. So the moment I get this place up and running, I can probably start doing a little bit more of these kind of videos where I kind of explain and also demonstrate um, exercises. So functional core, quotation, functional core, that will help the lumbar spine. Now, this is where we start having a little bit more fun. Um, I'm gonna draw another circle and it's gonna kind of overlap. And we are drawing a circle onto the hips and again, here we go again. For the hips, it's gonna be both a mobile joint and a stable joint. Let me tell you why. When you look at the hip, not only does it need to be mobile, it also needs to be able to stabilize you. So if you think of anything single leg you do, running, lunging, deadlifts, fucking walking, your hip, lateral hip stabilizers especially, need to able to stabilize so then you don't go into weird like side to side hip things and then your hips are popping this way and start getting hip pain. So in order for the hip to stabilize, a couple things need to happen. One, you can train it, and this is where I love, so if I had to do, let's do one of these, just stable exercises. Everything half kneel. So the reason why I like the half kneel position to create stability exercises is that it eliminates some other factors. So a lot of times when people are like, oh, I need more stability, I'm just gonna like be on one leg. You're on the right path, but there's so many other things that influence being on one leg, like your feet, your ankle, and your knee. So let's eliminate those factors and strictly work in just hip stability. So when I get someone in a half kneel position, now, because of this half kneel position, my hip is the only thing that's going to stabilize me. Especially if I take this front leg and bring it into midline, now I need to stabilize a lot more, right? So a lot of times when I train clients and people fall into buckets, like general population tend to need all of all the stuff that I'm already talking about, they need all of this. So for me, I kind of work on the inside right so I would look at t-spine lumbar and hips first and then branch out to the other things because again if we go back to this idea that it magnifies globally if I attack those three things it's going to influence other stuff and now I can get more specific right so that being said when I train in half kneel I can do so many things and again this this is how it's gonna spill over if I am in a half kneel position, and now I'm doing an anti-rotational uh, cable press, band press, whatever it is, I am now working hip stability, core stability, that's gonna help my lumbar stay stable. I've already hit two birds with one stone, right? This is where my whole idea of functional training comes into play. If I know I can choose an exercise that's not gonna just work 
one thing. And again, our bodies work as one unit. Obviously, if I pick an exercise that's a lot more um, influential on other parts of the body, then I'm on the right path, right? So not only does that help, I'm also gonna influence other things. So another example of that is if I have um, a half kneeling position, again, working hip stability and low back stability in this position, and I say do a cable face pull. I am now influencing my T-spine and my shoulders. So since we use the example of us all sitting, and I'm doing a face pull to promote a little bit more postural restoration in that kind of planar motion, now my T-spine is gonna function a little bit better being in that centered position. I'm also strengthening up all those weak postural muscles to kind of pull me out of there. So now I'm gonna influence the health of my T-spine, the health of my shoulder. Now my neck's gonna start feeling better. My hip is getting better stability work. My low back is being stable. Like, do you see how this kind of just magnifies and just goes on? This is why exercise selection is so important. And this is why I think when I train clients, they're like, I've never felt so much better in my life since I started training with you. Or like in the clinic setting, when I start working with patients and they end up becoming my client, right? They think they're doing the rehab, but when you look at it on paper, they're like, this is just a workout. But their exercise is chosen based on their um, needs for their body. Whew, that's a lot. Okay. So when in doubt, just half kneel everything and you'll be on the right path. Now, let's look at... Um, mobility stuff and king of exercises for hip mobility hip cars again just like the shoulder where are we right hip cars again we are going through all the motions a hip can do you continue doing that the articulation improves the integrity of the joint improves things start moving better and here's the other thing like I said, when the T-spine, I, I don't want to think I even brought this up yet. Um, when the, yeah, I did. So the, when the T-spine is restricted for mobility, the lumbar spine has to pick up the slack. When the T-spine um, moves better, the low back can relieve its duty and you know clear up any kind of aches and pains. The hip is the same thing. If I don't have enough mobility in the hip, the lumbar spine is going to take over. I find so many times that when I give more hip mobility to a patient or client, low back pain goes away. So now imagine if I start doing hip cars, shoulder cars, and a shit ton of T-spine mobility, low back pain tends to go away. Here's the next thing. What if I start choosing exercises in this core section that's going to give me more stability in that low back? now low back pain goes away. This is how this whole concept joint by joint plays in with how I program for my clients for them to move and feel better. Like this is like the blueprint of how we should be training, right? So again, I can go into so many different exercises when it comes to mobility for the hips, but honestly, if you started doing hip cars, things, are already gonna 
start moving and feeling better. I find that a lot of times people are always looking for new exercises, like it's going to fix everything that they haven't thought of already. But really, it's like, just move your fucking hip, move your fucking shoulder, move your fucking T-spine, Think good things will happen. Just keep, keep doing it, keep doing, keep doing it. Now, where do I wanna go from here? Because we haven't hit some joints. Um, I feel like I should do this like live so that people can ask questions. Um, let's go to the knee joint. Now, the knee joint, if you're going by this concept, the knee needs to be stable. But also, I will make the argument that the knee also needs to be mobile. And I'll explain that in a minute. Um, if you look at the human body, if the knee does not have proper stability, um, shitty things tend to happen. When this knee joint can't stabilize, you'll get things like anterior knee pain, lateral knee pain, medial knee pain, because the knee can't stabilize and stay in a neutral position. A lot of times, going back to this whole magnifying um, principle, the hip influences what the knee does. If the hip is not moving properly, the knee is usually fucked. So a lot of times when patients come in with knee pain, we're looking at their hip and also looking at their ankle, which we're gonna get into in a second. So when the hip is moving better, the knee is moving better. The hip will tell what the knee should do. So an example of that is if my lateral hip stabilizers are not moving properly or functioning properly, the knee will start going into weird positions. If I'm lunging and running, walking, I'm getting forces into my knee that should not be there. So there isn't like, in my mind, a knee stability exercise. It's more so work on hip stability in order for the knee to stay stable. So now I wanna move on to my whole idea of um, the knee being a mobile joint. I'm talking a lot, this is good. Um, if you look at the knee joint, we have our tibia that runs through ankle to knee. So if I, again, this goes back to like my kin stretch, I teach knee cars because I find a lot of people don't understand the concept that your knee can move. So if I drive my toes towards my face and I think of rotating to the right to external rotation, my tibia is moving to external rotation right now, right? If I don't have enough tibial rotation, if I deadlift, squat, lunge, walk, run, things are not gonna feel good. I find a lot of times when people have knee pain and I check their tibial rotation back and forth, they don't have a lot of it. So this is my argument that the knee should be somewhat of a mobile joint when it comes to tibial rotation. And knee cars is one of the ways to do it. Also, you can do some pails and rails and influence some tissue change, which could be a whole nother video. So I'm not gonna get into that because I kind of want to speed this up because last time I checked on this guy, we are, damn, 39 minutes, okay. Um, 
we're going to go into the ankle. Ankle joint needs to be mobile. Why? Because our ankles can move in so many different positions. And if you wanted to really, really nitpick, our ankle can also pronate, supinate, go back and forth. They're kind of on this little teeter-totter as well as so many other rotations, right? So when we lose mobility at the ankle, it influences everything up the chain, right? So if the ankle is super stiff, now the knee is gonna have to take over some of the work and the hip, and then that's where we end up with some more kind of knee pain and crap like that. So make sure the ankle is always super mobile. For example, for me, my left ankle has less dorsiflexion than my right, and that tends to mess up when I lunge, run, sometimes when I do um, kind of single leg work, I can notice a big difference. Um, so mobility-wise, any kind of extension, flexion, just rotational exercises, so ankle cars tend to work really, really well. Now I'm gonna draw another circle around the foot. I'm getting kind of crazy. So the foot itself, not the ankle, the foot needs to be a stable joint. So when I look at the foot, with all those intrinsic muscles around the foot to help you stabilize for a gait, needs to be stable. A lot of times when I see the foot not being stable, it makes a huge global impact on the ankle, the knee, the hip, and low back. The foot is such an under-serviced piece of machinery, especially the arch. Um, when those things clear up, a lot of this stuff works a lot better. Um, one thing that I will say, I'm gonna leave it for later because we're gonna move on because I know I've been talking a lot. Let's now look at the elbow joint. And, man, this is looking, so the elbow joint, kind of like the knee, it needs to be stable, but in my mind, it needs to also be mobile. Elbow obviously needs to be stable, so when you do push-ups, a bench press, pulling or anything, like the elbow's not flopping all over the place because it's super mobile, it just needs to be stable. And I will go back to specific exercises, um, but one thing will be grip training. But the reason why I think it needs to be mobile, if you go into elbows being tight against your rib cage, hands up to the side, and you go into pronation and supination, like it needs that rotation back and forth. And a lot of times, if you imagine, if you're a big fan of bench pressing and you realize that your pronation stops where it should go all the way almost parallel to the ground if you're in this position, you going onto a fixed axis by cranking your arms into that position and going down with weight probably not gonna feel really good on the forearm. So, elbow cars, just to go through different rotational 
movements for the elbow is going to be where you live and breathe. A lot of people don't think about the elbow being somewhat mobile. Like there's just, just enough mobility that it needs in order to function properly, to be stable, to influence other stuff. So here's another example. The elbow, if it does not have enough mobility, the shoulder now has to work a little bit more. And then it's kind of constant battle between shoulder and elbow of pain and tightness and crap like that. So a lot of times when not only say you get the shoulder moving better, the elbow frees up a little bit, but then if you get the elbow also moving a little better, the shoulder <laughs> again gets a little bit better. Now let's get into the wrist. Where do I, I'm gonna go the other way. Let's cross over here. So the wrist needs to be a mobile joint. We're almost there. So things like wrist cars is going to help a lot. I find that when you get the wrist moving a lot better, elbow starts moving, uh, moving and feeling better, shoulder starts moving and feeling better, T-spine and neck. Like you can see how this global effect, how everything influences another thing is a huge, huge, huge thing to pay attention to. Now, the thing I wanted to bring up that I kept saying I'll bring it up later is one exercise that I always make a joke that if someone got really, really, really good at that, it will just fucking fix everything. The single leg deadlift with an offset load or contralateral load. Now let's think about it. A single leg deadlift, what does it require? Adequate foot stability, adequate knee stability, hip stability and mobility, low back stability, T-spine um, mobility. It also needs grip strength, which is gonna influence elbow, um, elbow stability, sorry. It's also gonna influence shoulder stability. It's also gonna influence neck stability. So we've hit so many different points of this joint by joint system from one exercise. So my joke is that if I could get someone single leg deadlifting like 50 pounds, all their issues would be go like gone. Like, and, and demonstrate like effectiveness during the exercise. Like they're gonna fix a lot of stuff. So I spoke for a very long time. This was a lot, a lot to take in, but it is definitely something people need to pay attention to. I am going to take the camera and bring it a little bit closer so then you can see my little drawing. Um, so again, thank you guys for listening and watching. If you watch this, you guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have any questions about this, feel free to reach out. And that's it for me. Until next time, you guys. The topic today is intra-abdominal pressure, bracing your core, breathing, whatever you want to call it. Because currently I'm writing this section in my book and I didn't really touch on it as in-depth as I should in my first book. And I always feel bad when I start writing a section of my book that kind of expands on my 
previous one and I'm like, fuck, why didn't I talk about this? Why didn't I give more at the time? But again, as we grow up, because, you know, I still feel like I'm 16 years old in high school. Um, we learn more and we can give more to the world. So that's the situation. But breathing is so important, obviously, because we don't if we don't breathe, we die. Um, but when it comes to exercise, it is so vital to one for performance, but two for creating like a safety net around our body, especially our spine. So when you look at a sport like powerlifting, they, in my opinion, have one of the best bracing strategies for their spines to ensure that when they lift 800 pounds off the ground in a deadlift, that their, you know, what's it called? Their spines don't explode and shoot out into, not into, onto the gym floor. So when I am in the clinic and I have a patient in front of me that is needed to learn how to properly create a diaphragmic breath, I first assess them, and nine out of ten times, they breathe with their chest. All of us fall into this pattern. Our lives are dealt with so much stress, and we end up becoming chest breathers. And then our traps and our scalenes and all these muscles around our neck and shoulders end up becoming hypertonic, and they get super tight, and we can't do anything about it, no matter how much massage you get, how much theragun bullshit you do to yourself um they just are overactive and then you sit in a desk all day or in a car like i am right now and again you're stressed you're you're clenching you're breathing with your chest and your diaphragm doesn't move and just like anything if you don't use it you lose it i say this all the time now imagine because again your diaphragm is a muscle right if you don't use a muscle for a long time, it loses its ability to function the way it should. It doesn't go to sleep or doesn't get act it's not activating or whatever that bullshit that you hear. It simply means it goes into a state of atrophy, it's weaker, and it doesn't fire or function the way it should. So imagine if you know you never did bicep curls or never bent your elbow for like six months it would be awkward and weird and you would almost like forget how to like move your arm into a bicep um, position so just like your diaphragm when i'm in the clinic and i'm asking people to breathe through their belly it's almost like their mind can't connect to their diaphragm and there's this weird disconnect and there's things where i'll get people like okay well place one hand on your belly one hand on your chest and try to breathe into the bottom hand and even then, like, their breathing pattern's kind of off. They can't really figure out how to make that connection. So then the next layer is like, okay, I want you to place your hands at the bottom of your rib cage and place it, place it at the bottom of that rib cage. I'm like, repeating myself. I'm an idiot right now. Anyway, um, so the front of your fingers are going to be at the front of your belly. The little, like, crease between your index finger and your thumb is going to be surrounding kind of where your obliques are, and then your thumb is going to be pushed into the back of 
your back, kind of like where your kidneys sit. And every inhale, you should be able to fill your entire grip. And I call this like the Homer Simpson chokehold grip. So if you ever watch The Simpsons, um, you know that Homer chokes Bart. <laughs> anyway, and I just, I just like to use that analogy. And ideally, you should be able to fill that chokehold. And a lot of times, people have a lot of troubles. They still kind of breathe into their chest. So I'm like, okay, every exhale, you know, as you... Breathe in and exhale, everything kind of collapses. And I tell people in that chokehold position, push against your waist. And then every inhale and exhale, every single time you exhale, you want to push a little bit further. And it kind of comes down to this concept. If I went to over through this freaking video and try to push you over, your natural instinct is to resist against me, right? So if I'm pushing against my diaphragm, the natural instinct for my diaphragm is to push against my hands. Again, your diaphragm does not have a brain and it's like, oh, fuck, someone's pushing me. It's just like a reaction, right? And it's a great way to teach it. Sometimes that doesn't work. So what I'll do is place a sandbag or sand bell that's about 10 pounds and place it on someone's belly. And then now that we have a kind of like feedback textile thing on us gives us a little bit more sensory information and then with the added weight it gives you a little bit more stimulation that oh I have something and I need to push against it so now when I ask a patient or client to um, every time you inhale I want you to think of pushing that sandbag or sand bell um, up towards the ceiling it works beautifully now what this does creates this kind of domino effect of core function and core stability. When I lift something heavy, I want to create as much intra-abdominal pressure as possible to protect my spine. When I don't do that, I have now shear forces and compressive forces going into my vertebrae, and over time, that's going to fuck up my shit, and I'm going to have low back pain, hip pain, whatever it is. So, when I properly utilize a diaphragmic breath it starts this like waterfall domino effect like i said earlier of this beautifully orchestrated core contraction when we don't have function of our diaphragm at all and you're a chest breather where does that stability come from nowhere so now imagine you're in a gym trying to push yourself lifting heavier weights and honestly, this is why a lot of people end up getting like hernias, low back pain, pulling their whole back out and crap like that. And it all starts with this foundational thing, our breath, you know, and going back to that kind of like stressful um, scenario that we all live in. And because we're not utilizing our diaphragm, that's heightening our stress response. Because when you look at, again, our bodies are beautifully designed. Like, it's so well designed. When we utilize our diaphragm, it stimulates a cranial nerve called your vagus nerve. What is that responsible for? De-stressing your fucking body. So now imagine you going to your job every single day, sitting at a desk, and constantly in that stress response and you're not utilizing your diaphragm that's naturally designed to help you to chill the fuck out 
hell yes, your body is going to fucking hate you. Now, take that a step further and you repeat that for like 10 years because you're at the stage of your life where you have to work all the fucking time and you're not exercising and the stress response just gets worse and worse and worse and now it's affecting your sleep. And now you can't utilize your body's na another natural designed uh, thing where it helps you de-stress and your sleep is broken up or it's not as deep and you're just in this vicious cycle of shit and you can't get out of it. And no wonder our bodies are just like holding on for dear life to figure out its shit to move on and live and be happy and healthy, right? And this is where exercise comes in. This is where exercise is such a powerful thing. Like, it fixes everything. Like, it's ridiculous. But we need to learn how to utilize our foundational patterns, like breathing, to actually get the benefit of exercise. Because a lot of times people are like, oh, I'm gonna go like balls to the wall every time I go to the gym. And you end up fucking yourself over because your body can only take so much stress. And again, it goes back to this whole diaphragm thing. If this diaphragm is not breathing and moving and stimulating that vagus nerve to help you de-stress from all the stressors of life, then you're kind of fucked. Especially if you're going to the gym doing burpees and med ball slams and ropes and then sprints and all that other shit. It's probably not going to you know, go towards your favor of seeing the benefit of exercise. It's probably going to make things worse. That being said, as we utilize a full-blown diaphragmic breath, we can then create stability around our spine. I like to utilize the analogy that stability is kind of like a safety net. The moment we create stability in our body, then we can get proximal stability with our arms and legs to create movement. If we can't, sorry, distally, again, words, proximal, which is our diaphragm here, core, if we can't create proximal stability, then we can't have distal mobility and stability. Meaning if I want to run and throw and do a kettlebell snatch, if this guy in the center here does not work, then those things are not going to, one, look um, good, a.k.a. your form. And when you actually do it, it's going to create more problems than solutions. That being said, when we do a proper diaphragmic breath, I like to use the analogy of an unopened Coke can. And I've used this reference analogy so many times and I'm pretty sure I stole it from Dr. Uh, Charlie Weingroff that used this analogy probably like nine years ago now. So if you imagine our torso is kind of like a cylinder, right? Our diaphragm not only pushes forward when we take a deep breath, it pushes out to the side and also behind us, creating a cylinder effect of low back stability, torso stability, whatever you want to call it. For example, we take an unopened Coke can, place it on the floor. You could step on it and place your entire body weight on it. It does not go anywhere. Why? The 
can itself, because it's designed like a cylinder, it's a strong, solid foundation. But on top of that, we have liquid inside and also a compressive air, so like the um, carbonation that's stuck in there. So now when you add load to it, it is a strong little thing that can take, you know, if I step on it, it's 160 pounds, right? Like, that's pretty impressive. Now, let's take a second and open up that Coke can, pour out the liquid just a little bit, like well, one-fourth of a cup. Now step on it, it's going to crush underneath that weight of mine or yours, whatever you want to imagine. Now, that's what happens when we can effectively utilize our diaphragm and then we go into a heavy lift like a deadlift. You know, right there and then, you're not going to feel any kind of pain. I always say to uh, patients, like, injury happens when the amount of force that enters the tissue yields. When the tissue is like, holy fuck, that's enough, boom, right? Or how an injury happens is repetitive stress to the tissue. And again, it yields to that and goes, fuck, that's it. I'm tearing apart. When we don't utilize our diaphragm properly and create that low back stability that's needed to deadlift off the ground, we're just like slashing away at our vertebrae, our tendons, our tissues, everything. And eventually we go, holy fuck, why is my back hurt? Right? Take that a step further to more dynamic exercises like running, let's, and I like to use this analogy, like Usain Bolt. He has such a great and like efficient system of being able to contract, relax, contract, relax. The best athletes in the world can contract and relax their muscles faster than anyone else. And that's why they excel. So imagine when Usain Bolt runs his 100-meter sprint, the moment that his foot touches the ground every single time, his entire body creates stability, that stiffness, that intra-abdominal pressure because of his diaphragm. The moment in a running cycle where both feet leave the ground, because you're like literally like floating for a second, his entire body is super relaxed, super, you know, like zero muscle activation, but every time his foot touches the ground and has to like generate power, full body, body stiffness, right? Contract, relax, contract, relax. His diaphragm is so well-tuned and so well-developed that he can contract and relax that quickly. If we, again, we're not all going to be like Usain Bolt, but if we can learn how to tap into the power of our diaphragm where we can contract and relax at the right moments, then we can stay pain-free and our performance will increase. A lot of times when I work with an amateur lifter for the first time and you know they hit a plateau with their deadlift and they keep saying like every time I go heavier, I end up with like low back soreness, right? And form aside, if I test their breathing, they're not very good at it, right? A lot of people skip the foundations that they need in order to perform.
Now, going from almost like a rehab and postnatal um, perspective, a lot of uh, women who come out of pregnancy have a real tough time um, getting their core strength back because they have one, they have this pressure to get back to their like pre-baby weight type of thing. You know, they have all this pressure from society and this made up narrative in their head that for some reason, after you give birth right away, you need to like look the same way you did. Like, first of all, like one, you literally just pushed a human being out of you, I think you deserve some time to, you know, rest and let your body naturally heal. Like, number one. (laughs) Number two, there are so many, like, mommy programs and boot camps out there that choose exercises way too advanced for a postnatal mother. Number one, every pregnancy is different. Everyone heals differently. Everyone has different anatomy. Everyone has a different um, labor process. So throwing in things like burpees and crunches and mountain climbers is probably not the best idea. And again, pelvic floor health is something I always talk about, but a lot of times it's not mentioned in the world of powerlifting and um, men. But pelvic floor strength is huge for these athletes. If you look up um, Chris Duffin from Kabuki Strength out in Portland, I remember chatting with him one time, and, and he was saying like the biggest change for him was learning how to utilize his pelvic floor along with his diaphragm in order to perform better at his deadlift and back squat. So if you think about creating that intra-abdominal pressure, that compressed air in the cylinder, if your diaphragm's at the top of your rib cage and your pelvic floor is at the bottom, when these two contract properly, they almost kind of come down on each other, creating more intra-abdominal pressure to create more safety around your spine. And especially for postnatal women who come back to the gym too early or start doing exercises that are too advanced for them and they have zero um, intra-abdominal pressure, they're going to get pain in their low back and hip. Like it's, it's not rocket science. If I don't have stability in the lumbar region, it's going to get fucked really, really badly. And I am like dumbfounded about our industry where I see trainers giving just such shitty exercises to people that are just not ready for them. And again, like, yes, exercise is great for you. But I look at exercise as giving me longevity for my life. Like, my personal goal, like, I get clients all the time, like, oh, like, what are you training for? I'm like, I'm training to be a functional human being so that when I'm 90 years old, I don't need assistance. I want to be able to go outside and take a walk by myself and not rely on, you know, a cane, a walker, or a little like scooter thing. I want to be able to walk and live my life at 90. 
How do I get there? By doing exercises that won't fuck my body. So an example is, I've learned, I think three years ago, broad jumps fucking hate my body. I don't do them anymore. Like, what's the point of doing an exercise that I know is causing me issues? And I went down a rabbit hole to figure that out, right? So now you take all these general population people that are going to gyms and either figuring their shit out on their own or just following a cookie cutter program. And in that cookie cutter program, maybe say the 10 exercises that are in there, seven are really good for them and three of them are actually making them worse, you know? And exercise is supposed to give you um, better quality of life, better health. But if I am constantly going into a gym where I am doing exercises that are slowly wearing me down and slowly going to pull me out of that environment where I could get the benefit of exercise and now I have to stop because I'm injured, it's going to be this rough like up and down thing where, you know, three months I'm training consistently. Now I have to stop for a month because my back hurts, my knee hurts, whatever it is. Then I come back, but not at full capacity because I'm worried about my injury and whatever else is happening. And then I'm not burning as many calories. I'm not enjoying the workouts anymore. My motivation might go down. And then I'm like, you know what? I've been babying my knee for two months. I'm going to go back to where it was. And then I get injured again. And it's just like this vicious cycle of up and down, up and down. And you will never end up seeing the result or just the benefit of exercise in general because you're constantly in this battle of trying to move and feel better, but you keep doing the wrong things, you know? And it just pains me to see that there's some trainers out there that will train based on their own interests, right? Like, I love using kettlebells as a trainer, but does that mean that every single client that I train uses kettlebells? Fuck no. No. Right? Like, I see it all the time. Like, a trainer that's more athlete-based or whatever will start trying to train their clients like athletes, but like, get it through your head that most people can't train like an athlete unless it's their full-time job. And most likely, they haven't played a sport like a pro athlete their entire life in order to do those things, right? So this is a big tangent that I'm going on, but it bugs me to see poor choices being made by trainers because usually it's out of their own self-interest and not the interest of their clients. I always tell my clients, like, you're in charge of your health. I'm just here to kind of guide you in the right direction. This is why I always, like, ask clients, like, what do you want to see in your program? A lot of times they're just like, you know what, I trust you, just do your thing. But eventually when I keep asking that, they'll eventually tell me, like, you know what, I feel like my left leg needs a little bit more stability. Can we do a little bit more hip stability stuff to improve that 100%? And this is the other thing, too, is, like, a good coach will not only just prescribe exercise, but also teach their client what they need to know. Like, I can have a full-blown conversation with my clients and about training, and they will understand, you know? They will 
have they have the ability that you know when we were able to travel and they go to a public gym to train on their own they can spot bad form they can spot exercises where they go i don't know if that's uh good for you type of thing right so i feel like as a coach you do more than just provide exercise you have to give them the tools to succeed in life when they have to do this on their own right like I'm very fortunate that a lot of my clients have stuck with me for years, years. I like to think that it's because of my, you know, amazing personality, but I think it's just because they see the value of what I provide day in, day out, month after month, year after year, right? I'm constantly trying to improve myself and I'm constantly trying to do that because now I can improve the life of another human being standing in front of me. Um, today, what we're going to talk about is grip strength because I feel like it's one of those things that pops up in people's um, kind of lifting careers within that first year. And I think it usually stems down to two things. Number one, it's bad habits and number two people don't train um, their grip strength at all in their programming um, sorry I'm like distracted because there is a person learning how to drive and the person behind him is like honking at them for not going like chill the fuck out okay this person is driving for the first time um People are just so insensitive. I just fucking hate that shit. Like, chill. It's like, no, nah, I'm not going to get into it. I'm going to go on a fucking huge tangent about it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so typical scenario is I'll get a patient or a client, actually never a client because I fucking train people really well, um, just people who lift, and they'll complain that, you know, after a couple reps into their exercise of lunges, squats, whatever it is, anytime they have to grip their dumbbells or kettlebells, you know, their forearms start to fatigue really, really quickly and they can't actually uh, perform the exercise. And what I tell them is usually what happens is that when people start training, they tend to have this kind of like loose grip on their dumbbells. It almost is like they'll hold it tight with, you know, their thumb, their pointer finger, middle finger, but then when it comes to their ring finger and pinky finger, they kind of have this kind of loose grip. And then when people start fatiguing while they're exercising, they kind of do this like weird hook grip thing and it just becomes a habit. And then what happens is as they get stronger and usually it's like, say you're doing reverse lunges and you're using usually 20 pound uh, dumbbells on both sides. As you start doing like the 25s, 30s, 35s, that's where people will start complaining, fuck, like my, my grip strength, my forearms are burning, or at the same time, um, people will complain about that same thing as they start trying to do chin-ups for the first time. They'll start complaining that their forearms um, fatigue faster than what they can actually perform on the chin-up bar and 
the simple fix is like one you need to fucking death grip everything you grab in the gym when you start training you know it's just a bad habit and without you gripping the crap out of that barbell dumbbell kettlebell when you're exercising your forearms don't get the same training effect like the rest of your body and then they have to play catch up right so I always coach when people grab dumbbells, kettlebells, barbells, I teach them, like, I want you to death grip it. Because, again, it also comes down to joint centration, which I brought up in our last or a couple episodes ago. And that places the shoulder in a better position. Because the moment you squeeze something tight, you have this, like, neurological response of your body going, oh, fuck, we have something heavy. Let's get into a better optimal position to lift, Right? And it translates to so many exercises, especially the barbell deadlift that so many people kind of collapse in their upper body because they don't know how to create tension. They don't know how to crush the bar. And it all comes down to grip strength. And when you look at like research out there when it comes to um, life expectancy and um, length, they do a lot of testing with grip strength. As you lose grip strength, the rest of your body kind of just deteriorates, right? So I place a huge emphasis on building grip strength. So that's the first like facet of building a more resilient body and fixing this whole grip issue. The other portion to it is actually programming carries in your program. I find that when I look at other people's programs and they send it to me or you know people are like hey like I got this program from a friend can you look at it what do you think or like I found this workout online what do you think and besides all the other crap that I usually point out you don't see grip like training at all there's no grip strength training at all in programming that people show me and something as simple as just doing a farmer carry goes a long way So in all my programming, there is some sort of carry variation for my clients and patients. Like, especially patients that come in with shoulder shit, I give them so much carries, and one, they're shocked that they can even lift it, right? Like, I've literally had people with rotator cuff tears, and I'm like, okay, we're gonna hold this kettlebell on your side, and I want you to walk down the gym and come back, and when they come back, they're like, oh, like, I I thought this would hurt. I'm like, no, when you death grip shit, things fall into place. Like, training is not that difficult. It's just common sense most of the time. So when I program, and I usually tell people, like, if you are training in the gym, say, three days of the week, you want at least those two days to have some sort of carry in there. Right, So there's a lot of different ways to do carries. And one of my favorite ways is to you know, grab two kettlebells, two dumbbells, whatever it is, and do an inline farmer carry. Meaning, when you grab um, you know, a heavy load, and the other thing too when I coach is when I do carries, I don't let them be really, really close to uh, my client's thighs or my, my legs. Because one, with dumbbells especially, you end up hitting it and then that little swaying motion can fuck some shit up in your back. So I always um, coach and cue like at least 10 degrees of shoulder abduction because now your shoulder, especially deltoid and um, rotator cuff, have to work a lot harder to keep you in that position. 
And again, you get a little bit more time under tension, more muscle fibers being fired, and all that good shit. So now, not only are you working on your grip strength, your rotator cuff health, shoulder health, you're also burning more calories and all that other fun shit that just makes sense in this kind of setting. Um, and then I like to walk in line, meaning, think about if you had a tightrope in front of you, and you take one step, and then you take your other leg to do the next step, but you place that heel in front of your toe. So you're kind of like walking on a tightrope. And the reason why I do this, because a lot of times people just rush their um, farmer carries. And like usually, traditionally farmer carries will be like, oh, you got 100 yards there and back, or the gym length and back. And a lot of times people just rush. And like one, there's a chance of you tripping, falling, rolling, or breaking an ankle. But especially now with COVID, and if your gym has reopened, most of the time you're going to be limited to how much space you can do. So by doing an inline carry where you have to go slowly, because if you go too fast, you end up falling over uh, and losing balance, you now have the time under tension. And most likely the time it would take you to like almost jog one length of the gym and back would take you as much as, you know, taking 10 steps forward and back two times right so there's that benefit the second benefit is now muscle working foot stability ankle stability knee stability hip stability and core stability all in one exercise along with grip strength shoulder health and all that fun stuff right so i love figuring out ways to um you know kill two birds with one stone when it comes to um exercises so i've been doing this with um carries at least the last four years and I've seen a huge improvement in my clients uh, strength and grip strength particularly obviously and that would be like one variation just two kettlebells two dumbbells by your side the second one is a single arm carry and the I particularly like a single arm um, because it basically simulates a side plank yeah, like a side plank. Because if you think about it, in a side plank, you're fighting anti-lateral flexion. If now I'm standing and I'm holding a kettlebell or dumbbell to my side and it's pulling me one way and I have to fight it, I'm fighting lateral flexion. Like, duh. Like, it's brilliant. And I stole that from Mike Boyle. I did not come up with that myself. And I get that a lot for people, especially with shoulder stuff. Because I, you know, a lot of times, like, you've probably had it yourself or a client's where you put them in a side plank and they're like, oh, this doesn't feel good on my shoulder. And you're like, well, fuck, like side planks are awesome. Like they're good for you. So you got to come up with other shit. So the um, single arm, uh, God, I can't speak. The single arm uh, farmer carry works amazing. Now, this is why I love kettlebells is now you can play with all these other variations. So now think of a single arm racked carry, same idea double racked carry you can also do with dumbbells where you have them in front and kind of in a front squat position but turned in a supinated um, way and squeezing the dumbbells together and now pushing it forward a little bit so now your anterior core has to fight that like fucking awesome and now you can also do offset loads so like say you do two kettlebells and two dumbbells but you have one that's 50 pounds and another one's 25 so you now have an offset load that will fuck you up royally. Um, also, also, I can't speak. Also, um, single arm kettlebell rocked carry with a kettlebell on the other side hanging down by your side. Another great way. 
overhead carries, everything. Another one that I played around with pre-COVID that I really liked is getting a trap bar loaded and heavy. You deadlift it and you use that to do a carry. Like absolutely love it. Um, there's so many variations. Like if you just Google farmer carry variations, it's gonna give you an endless list of stuff to try. So 100%, give those a try, put those in your program, do that for the next three months and you 100% will improve your grip. You won't be complaining anymore that your forearms are um, fatiguing too quick. So I'm gonna leave it at that. Hit me up on Facebook and Instagram. Click the show notes to get that link. You guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And be sure to give a five-star review on this podcast anywhere that you're listening to so we can reach more people. Share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are amazing.